Socrates once said that true wisdom is knowing that you know nothing. And that's how we're going to start this first ever podcast of What You Don't Know with Jack and Travis now. We're going to get into a lot in this episode, uh, and we're going to start by prefacing what this whole thing is about. And really, it's about father and son intergenerationally having discussions on relevant topics ranging from sports, religion, politics, relationships, economics, government. We want to really kind of tackle it all and learn from each other in this kind of dance, this dialogue. The whole goal behind this was to, to learn more from my dad and hopefully challenge him on some of his thinking and ultimately have a platform to look back on conversations. And so if you're listening to this right now, just know how grateful I am and how grateful we are. Uh, the fact that you think that the two of us are compelling enough to, to listen to. And my hope for this project is that I continue to learn and grow through it. And hopefully those listening can get something and get some benefit out of it as well. So with that, I welcome you to the first ever episode of What You Don't Know podcast featuring discussions on leadership, uh, the current status of our pandemic and coronavirus and really all the craziness that's going on currently in the world. Uh, We talk about some economic implications, how we come out of this, and ultimately um, the right mindset and mentality to have in in times of struggle. So a lot of good stuff, a lot of great wisdom shared from my dad, and uh, we're learning through this process, and I hope you can uh, enjoy the ride. So welcome along to uh, our first podcast episode. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. I haven't been in my whole life, and I've been trying to learn from you and um, I think as we've gotten older, as I've gotten older, challenging you has maybe taught you a couple of things. I don't know. Well, the hard part about getting old is I remember your grandfather, my dad, <laughs> we joked that when he got in his fifties, he became a know-it-all. He'd had the best chili ever. He'd had the best this or that totally. to the point where it was annoying. Yeah. And now I'm 60 or almost 60 and I feel exactly like he did. I know everything. Like, so I, yeah. I have to recognize maybe that's not always correct. For sure. But you feel like you've been around long enough to have seen enough things to say, well, I'm not sure the younger generation really gets, gets what's it. going on. Because you've lived it. And I've seen it. And, and I, I, I joked with clients today with this pandemic, uh-huh. which is something that's never, I mean, this is one of the largest impactful yeah, which events. We'll, in, we'll get into right. for sure. Yeah. So I joked with a client today that, in my 38 years of doing this job, the one thing I've never seen is a zombie apocalypse. It must be right around the corner because it's next. Yeah. Because everything is always everything different seen, yeah. and I've seen everything else. So, yeah. You know. And this is the first time in our podcast where mom has walked by in her high heels. It will it not be, be the last. last. <laughs> oh, goodness. But yeah, so it's funny. It's funny because not that you're anything like grandpa. And, and if he gets to hear this podcast at some point, I hope he would flattered to hear that you're, you're very much it. like him but I think it takes wisdom to know that gosh I am be, I am maybe set in my ways yeah I need to keep learning right and maybe look I don't have nearly as much to offer you as what you have to offer me and so I have a lot more to gain from this podcast and these conversations than maybe you do but I think you working out your thoughts by me challenging you from a millennial standpoint from a 
you know, I, I sit in different types of conversations than you do. And I, you know, so I think. So where I appreciate that is I try from a knowledge standpoint to learn from reading and I try my best like every morning to look at a, a, a website like Real Clear Politics, yeah. which will have editorials from all the major papers. And I try my best to read one on that's pro this and anti this. Yeah. But the problem with that is in trying to get two perspectives is it isn't necessarily a 30-year-old's perspective. So again, I don't, yeah. I don't, you can't go to the, you can't go to a website and go, well, what do 30-year-olds think of what's going on in the country today? So it's great, you know, from a learning perspective, if I'm going to read about editorials that give a political point of view, I should also hear a generational point of view. For sure. Totally. Because the reality is I'm not that educated on politics. And, and probably, I don't know, there are some people in, in my age group that are and that pay a lot of attention, but I can guarantee you no one's logging as many miles reading Real Clear Politics or Fox News or MSNBC or whatever it is as, as you are or people in your generation. And by the way, that's very much a baby boomers thing, right? It's like we're very much more social media driven. Correct. And trust me, you and I will get into plenty of conversations and, and I'm sure podcast episodes on that in itself. But the dialogue is different. We're in two different spaces. Very much so today. But more than, well, we've always had, you know, when I was growing up, our parents were, you know, stuck in the mud, conventional, traditional. And we were, so it, it, I think that always goes along that the younger generation has a kind of a, a different attitude towards what's going on in the country. Yeah. It doesn't mean they're right, but. For sure. It's like the youth thinks we can change the world now, and you've lived long enough to know that. It doesn't work <laughs> doesn't that way. It doesn't work that way. No. Uh, that being said, it's it's certainly valuable information for, for you to learn from, and I, I love, you know, I, I've written some quotes down, and. I plan on incorporating them throughout the course of this podcast, not just this episode, but in general, because I, I love quotes in general, but it's, I, I never learned from a man I agreed with. And I just think that's right. interesting. It's like being able to oppose each other and have different dialogue is how you kind of work things out in your mind. Cause you don't know your own argument well enough until it's been opposed. Well, and it's always important to know and understand where the other side is coming from, even if you disagree, because otherwise you can never have a real reasonable discussion can't formulate your argument if and too many if times with someone yeah issues have two sides to them there isn't a right or wrong there's two different opinions and when you have two different opinions it's important to look at there's a great quote uh, by alan dershowitz a uh, harvard law professor that says uh. shoe on the other foot so whenever you're looking at an issue and you make a big bold <laughs> statement about it imagine if you were on the other side yeah could you say the same thing mm. so whenever you know, you favor a political party and they do something right or wrong, or generally you say, oh, they're doing it right. Would you feel the same way if the other party did it the same way? So it, before you can espouse a, a, a point of view on a position, you should be able to agree with it that that's the right thing to do regardless of which party said to do mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And so you always have to say, well, wh and we do this all the time with, well, Barack Obama was president, George Bush was president, <laughs> Republican, Democrat. So if George or George Bush did it this way. If Barack Obama done this exact same thing, would you agree the same? If you can't say yes, then you're biased. Yeah, it should be a. The, the, your opinion on the issue should not matter which political party is for or against it. Yeah, you should be able to say if the other party agreed yeah. with you, you'd have to go, yeah, they're right. Absolutely, and I think that's where I come into play, at least in our dialogue, 
is I try to question your biases and I know, uh-huh. and I know you are very, look, I, I know you're very well read and I know, you know, the other arguments and a lot of times, like I know you're right, but I like to question you just to keep you in check on your biases. I know you do. And I think that's where we're going to have fun in the course of the, this podcast. And my and job at that point is to, to show, well, no, is to show that, <laughs> that your bias is right, that, that <laughs> you actually can make my point. If I, if, that's what I try to do then is say, well, okay, you're challenging me, but listen, yeah. what you're saying is actually and in a way making my point. Well, and that makes you more skilled in your arguments, which that's what I try. It doesn't I, always work out that it, way. It doesn't always, <laughs> but I think if, if there's any value, you know, for you in this podcast is you're only going to become that much better of yeah. a, someone to articulate your points and I have, you know, certainly a lot to learn. So with that, I think that kind of encapsulates, you know, as an introduction of what the whole goal of this thing is, is for us uh, to work out, you know, our different points of view and, and for, you know, conversation to stem from it. I think we'll, I mean, man, our talks can range from politics to sports, to relationships, to religion, to, Economics. I mean, uh, you you name it. Uh, to family structure, to drink masculine, pre- drink feminine, preferences. drink preferences. I mean, I I think I've got two two pages, you know, full of concepts and and different discussion topics I'd like to dive into. So, uh, looking forward to this kind of journey with you. And and the last thing I'll close with is, you know, the biggest idea that really came across to me in thinking about this all was if I could have some sort of archive of our conversations twenty years from now. How much could I learn from that? And how wrong will we be in 25, 20, 25 years? I think that's worth thinking about too. <laughs> that's a bit scary. But has there ever been a time where you can really, like, I mean, to think about, you know, maybe when I'm your age, if I can look back and see how I was thinking or to see how you were thinking and to see how what has been confirmed or denied or just, I, I think in general, just the meaning of that dialogue, I think right. will, will sink in with me long, long time from now. And that was something that really hit me when I thought about, I got to do this. So... I only wish the climate change folks would have documented <laughs> what they said 20 years ago oh, about man. the future. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, we'll look back on this conversation as we dive into the current <laughs> status of things. And it'll even, even now that'll be an interesting one to look back on. So with that, that is sort of, you know, our introduction to what you don't know and uh, what this podcast is going to be. So uh, with that, we can kind of dive in. I, I got some questions. We're, what are we, what the heck is going on right now? What are we, what is what are we going through these last three weeks? <laughs> you know, in our industry, we call it a black swan, an event that's not expected. And we can't plan for black swans. They come and they can be anything from the financial crisis of 08, where people were over leveraged in their homes, or the dot-com bubble in 2001, um, the market crashed in 1987, for no particular reason. It's just sometimes you get an event that just drives the markets crazy and, and the economy and everything else. This one, a pandemic, we've had pandemics before. This one, for some reason, our reaction to it has been different, and it's been um, extreme, maybe necessarily extreme, but we're really taking it seriously, and it's a pandemic affects the whole world, and in my lifetime, I'm not sure I've seen an event, you know, 9-11 was tragic, but I'm not sure the country felt it the same in New York as they did in Iowa. Yeah. But they are today with this pandemic. And so Or even globally. And and then certainly like, globally yeah. we're seeing, you know, country after country that's having to deal with it. Um, you know, it's a it's a big deal. The the first comment I would have is things are happening much faster than usual. And I'm not sure that even social media and hmm. our news cycles today are part of that, but 
in, in the marketplace, things that would take 30 days to absorb in terms of news are happening in one trading session. Yeah. Markets are reacting so quickly to every piece of news that you almost can't react to it. I mean, a week ago, I was in the casino. Today, yeah. you can't even be outside. Yeah. I mean, went from not being able to be in a casino to having the national parks closed. That's in a week. The rate that it's, it's accelerating. It's to think so that fast. you and I were in Vegas together a couple weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, and we I came did. down with the flu, ironically, <laughs> but but it was sort of it was sort of emerging at that point. But it was kind of a joke. It wasn't a joke. We were like, oh, it, it was still have coronavirus. It was totally in the periphery. It wasn't like it affected the markets no, or anything. Didn't affect any of our planning, and, any of our events. And to think that was still in March, right? That was, that was early it was March. This month, it was three weeks ago. It was this month. In the course of the t- in that time frame, Three to weeks. think how much business is shut down, how much the economy has been affected. Um, the, mar- the market's lost a third of its value. You know, it's trillions of dollars in, in. You know. And what's been built up over? I mean, it, the economy was thriving, right? I mean, we were we in were such a, a good place. We I, just had a great jobs report. The yeah. economy's doing terrific. Uh, unemployment, the labor market's really tight. Unemployment is really low. Um, and, and what makes this odd and different than other calamities or crises that we've had is, generally speaking, the reaction is to how do we get the economy going again? If we had the market crash in 08 because of bad real estate loans, how do we get things going again? This has actually been shutting our purposely shutting down our economy. Yeah, Never yeah. had it like that. Yeah. And, and the line that I've heard that I, I agree with is, generally speaking, if we have a crisis like 9-11, the country comes together, people go out, they sing songs, they, they support each other, and it's kind of a get out and, and hug your neighbor. So now we're facing a crisis where this is the last thing you're allowed to do. Yeah. We're actually trying to do it by separating. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an odd way of trying to fight something where you're actually working together by distancing yourself. Because no, I have not seen that. Well, because, yeah, normally the silver lining or the upside to tragedy is like the solidarity, right? It's like we, we're going to rally together. together. It's the prayer circles. It's the power of community Vegas and the uplifting. And the, you know, yeah, you, you see that kind of stuff. It's like Vegas is a great example. That tragedy happens and the way the city rallies. They and, all came together. And the team, you know, and you see the Vegas Knights go and go right. on that run. And it's something that it's like very tangible. But when everything closes and everyone's confined and, and, you don't have that, that even to the point that, that, I, that I don't like when I was out this weekend and hiking is when you went by another group, you actually looked at them as the enemy in some ways because yeah. they may have a virus. Yeah. You know, you had to keep your distance. Now we were pleasant and you said hi, but it's awkward to be saying hi while you're backing away. Yeah. And that's, you know, you're on a trail and you're trying to separate. Yeah. And it's the right thing to do, but we've never faced a crisis in that capacity where you're actually isolating each other yeah uh isolating from each other yeah it, you'd mentioned you know you'd seen other black swans before for me this is the first tangible one in my lifetime i i, I was i remember 9-11 i was you know gosh i was but your responsibility 11 years old you're an adult totally i was 11 years old but i'll never forget the moment but right. i just remember speculating in sixth grade you know at recess so it wasn't like you didn't have a mortgage. You didn't have a mortgage. It didn't sink in. Yeah, exactly. You didn't have a mortgage then. <laughs> didn't have a job to keep. Oh eight, I was going to college. I just couldn't get, couldn't wait to get out of the house, <laughs> get away from you guys. Understandable. Uh, so, so that didn't hit me. How would you compare it to previous? You, you've, you've, you know, that that's what I'm here to learn from you. Is how the, would you compare it? The thing that um, is the biggest difference is is the impact it's had on everybody. I mean, 
before you feel sorry for yourself in this environment, your neighbor's having a, another issue. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. you can go down the, the list of the high school senior that's graduating is not going to have graduation in his prom to, you know, our sister, my, your sister, my daughter is not, her wedding is going to get postponed. Yeah. Everyone's in their own crisis yeah, mode. Yeah. Um, the commission salesman, they can't make a living this month mm-hmm. because no one will have an do an appointment with him. The restaurant, the owner, restaurant industry is, you know, been yeah. devastated. Yeah, and and they've been asked to shut down. Yeah, it's yeah. not like they were doing a poor job. Restaurant sure. business is tough enough. Yeah. they go out of business in good times. Yeah, they're thriving and then have to and, be shut down. And to be told yeah. you can't serve anybody anymore. So, yeah. you know, the idea that it goes across. Now, I don't think it's equal across the country. I think the Midwest and rural areas, to their benefit, um, they're not, it's not densely populated. They're less likely to have this happen. You look at New York City, it's a perfect breeding ground of uh, foreign travelers coming into the city, and the city is on top of each other. Yeah. So, you know, living in that urban environment affects them to a greater degree than it does in Norman, Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, but with that said, even the people in Norman, Oklahoma, they've got the coronavirus is in that state. Yeah. And it's, I've never seen it where the yeah. entire country is truly feeling it. We go off to war, and it affects families that have soldiers in their families but there's a lot of people who go on about their business as if you know us in a war with afghanistan for 17 years has not done anything to change their lives yeah yeah this is different it's an interesting thought i hadn't really thought about that with new york yet but do you think things like this in some ways are a market reset for really concentrated urban areas to dissipate like like are places like new york are we designed to, to all be stacked on top of each other and have millions and millions of people in one small area? I think things like this shed make you, light. Make that, you think about it. Yeah. So I'll go a step further. Should we have sovereign states? Should we have sovereign countries? You know, the European Union is not all that old. It's been around not that long. Yeah. And the fact that Spain, France, Italy in particular are struggling with this more than anybody else, they have open borders. They have no central government for, for their individual countries. They're managed by the, you know, the whole yeah, European yeah, Union. Yeah. So people travel very easily, which in good times which is, is a beautiful, is a beautiful thing. Of Europe, but yeah. in a bad time, you, it's, it just you know, it brings in a, a potential virus that they have no way to shut down the borders at the same rate the United States can. And it's, it's wreaked havoc on their economies and their people to a greater degree than it has in a lot of other places. So, so the idea that um, dense areas, free travel, free uh, movement without any borders is terrific. But the, 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 what you're really getting at is globalization can have its downside. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if you can't travel easily between countries, you can't sp- spread a pandemic. Yeah. Um, one of my concerns with that is if our enemies are watching, this is a very easy way to shut down the United States. We, they'd sent 19 terrorists to learn how to fly planes and go into buildings and killed 3,000 people in a couple of cities, New York and Washington, D.C., and that was a tragic and big deal. You send five people with, with deadly viruses on five different planes from the Middle East or Russia or whatever our enemy is into five major cities in the United States tomorrow. They spend 12 hours on a plane infecting everybody else, and they'll walk around the city, a densely populated city for three, three days you could wipe out the United States. Yeah. Well, we didn't realize how our economy is crumbling over an accidental virus that is not deadly, relatively speaking. It wasn't designed to be a deadly virus, 
Um, you know, it's not designed, it's, that's not what it's built to be, but it could be. And if it was, it, it's a weapon. Yeah, I have two thoughts. I, I think I have two thoughts on that one. I, you're totally right. I think that's almost operating for the perspective of people are out to get us, which I don't necessarily, I don't feel that way. But again, I'm not as in. The people in, in, the people in, in New York didn't think that on 9-11 Yeah, either. true enough. Here's what I'll say, though, that I've actually ruminated a lot on the last week. It's interesting how an underlying simple thing like a virus that to you and I, we might even be asymptomatic to it, like as a healthy person, right. might not even phase me. Right. You get a mild case. Right. And it's deep enough to flip the entire world upside down. We focus on the 9-11s of the world, right? You said 3,000 people, these big, you know, surface level things. And, and it almost is like in life, too, you focus on the big things. You don't realize underneath it all, there, it's those little mistakes. It's those little, the, it's the virus that can get into things underneath it all that can actually really infect yeah. things. And I, I, I see that from like a, just an individual standpoint yep. too. You, it's, we, we put a lot of emphasis and impact on, on the big events, the big moments, and this is who a person is because of this. And, and it's, it's the little things underneath the surface that I think can really flip things upside down. Something really subtle. Yeah. And in fact, what makes it so subtle is you can't see it. Yeah. The virus is nothing more than a absolutely hidden um, killer that, you know, you don't see coming. It's so subtle. Yeah. It's uh, and it's crept up very quickly and it's caused what's what's so interesting about its subtlety is once it does come to the surface, it, it invokes panic. And that's one thing I, I wanted to ask you about. When, when I compare it to the other black swans. Yeah. So let me ask you it back in a different way. Yeah. In 2009, we had another pandemic. You, you probably didn't I even know what it was. No, I and you were younger. You. But most people don't remember. It was called the swine flu, H1N1. Yeah, I do remember swine flu. I remember swine flu and Ebola, but they didn't like, I didn't well, even bat an eyelash. And Ebola, Ebola was a very deadly virus from Africa. Yeah, but it was, unless it, you were It didn't come to the United States. Yeah, we prevented yeah. it from spreading, and so no one died in the United States. I remember swine flu. But, I remember SARS. So Right, yeah, MERS yeah. and SARS. And again, they came to our shores, but not to a great degree and didn't really uh, impact people from a fatality standpoint. But the swine flu did. The stats on the swine flu are kind of interesting. And my question to you is, where do you think our reaction to this is so different than the swine flu? The swine flu ended up infecting 60 million people in this country. It mm. killed 12,469 people. It had killed 1,000 people six months into it before the administration at the time even said it was a national emergency. In other words, people were dying. Yeah, yeah. And... No one was talking about it. Yeah. Today, we have less than 1,000 people killed, and yeah. we're going to have a lot more when this runs its course. But 12,469 people dead in 2009 to 2010, yeah. April to April, it's a lot of people. And 60 million people actually, actually got, got a it. case of the swine flu, and we hardly talk about it. And I know at the time, it wasn't an issue. I think I have an answer for you, or at least from my perspective. What's I'm changed? Curious. Media. I and I would say don't that disagree with that. My thought is how quickly between social media, between the media platforms, there wasn't Twitter. There wasn't, and, and I'm not just saying social media, but like things weren't as rapidly spread. At least, I, I mean, I remember in 2009, I was just getting Facebook for the first time, so things were starting to matriculate in that way. But it, it, the world we live in, ten years later 
is it's media very different is so media instant, and it's so and so with that, I, agree. I, I wouldn't put the blame on media. I more so put it on because everyone can tap into it like a virus it spreads quickly that negativity and that pessimism and that that oh my gosh the world is ending right i think has accelerated fear a lot of this you know i i think what we're facing with a lot of people that i've struggled with because i haven't really felt fearful in any of this i felt you know the the economy and all that kind of stuff has put me you know, in, in moments of uncertainty, but people have generally, I mean, when you go and buy 10 rolls of toilet, you know, 10 bags of toilet paper or whatever, because you think you're going to be quarantined for the next six months or a year, you're operating from a scarcity mindset of the world's going to end. This is it. I'm panicked. Yep. And I think that is infectious in itself, that mentality. And you tie in media to that. And I just think it accelerated everything that I don't remember in 09 that, uh. I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't think the case itself is maybe as that much different, but I think what we, I think we've added fuel to the fire. And I think the, I think you're right. The media and the news cycle is so 24 seven and so many different venues for information that it, you get in panic mode really fast and then it stays in that. I've noticed the media, no matter what station you're looking at uses words like spiked, surged, jumped. Ah, uh, yeah. It, they're all fear words. Yeah. There's no calm or, or almost objectivity because you start to wonder if panic sells. I mean, people tune into something that's, it's like a car wreck. Everyone watches. And we've gotten a mentality that the media presents something in its worst light or in a, in the doomsday light, as opposed to a rational or a more objective light. And everyone goes, oh my God, did you know that? And then you get a lot of false information. You hear stories about, did you hear that? You know, I, I heard from a client, Did I heard dogs were getting infected with this. Where are you hearing this from? You know, now you get a lot of misinformation from the media when there's a ton of media out there, and they're not held, held accountable. Um, so I'll ask a question back to you the, as well, though, from a political standpoint. Do you think who's in office and what party's in charge made a difference between 09 and now in terms of the way the media handled the, mm. the situation? And it, mm. if, if, if they handled it differently because of the administration's, they're very powerful in perception for the mm. for the for the. I hadn't thought about that. Way. I will. I would definitely. I wouldn't disagree with you that they're very powerful because they, in a lot of ways, control the agenda and look how much they can sway the populace. Yes. So I agree with you there. And yeah, do I think, in some level, the media is just eating up the fact that in election year, when things were going, the economy is running and everything's going great, that now this happened, that you can now have clickbait fear yes i do think all of that um which is tragic it is it's it, it is it is what it is but it's yeah. it's unfortunate because it's creating a false reality correct it's it's literally it's it's pushing an agenda that actually doesn't have to be there so if you go back to the headlines in january and early february about this coronavirus worldwide you will find that most of the media was literally saying nothing to fear hmm. it's all made up it's irrational. You, it really isn't that big a deal. Even the World Health Organization, when Donald Trump put a travel ban on Chinese air flights in the United States, said that's not necessary. And everyone called him a racist and a xenophobe for doing it because, you know, he doesn't like foreigners. And yet now the media headlines are just the opposite. He's not taking it seriously. 
we're not doing enough. We don't have enough hospital beds. So just the media between January and March, in, in looking at the headlines in the major papers, they've completely changed how they report on an issue that maybe on both sides, if they were more objective, would have realized this was a big issue and realized today it's not as big an issue as you're making it. And it frustrates me because I think the media drives the, the mood of the country to the point where if everybody's losing their jobs over it, that's really tragic. Yeah. If, industry, if the restaurant industry's going People's out of business. livelihoods over. And I think you, look, what's scary, because you're right about the accountability with the media in the sense that, like, they don't really have, uh, there's nothing really in place for them to be able to recant and be like, we fucked up. You know, like, we, we, <laughs> we got this wrong back in January. Or, like, it, it's not that way. It's actually the 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 negative part about it all is they thrive off clickbait and they thrive off it's to the point where media thrives off drama not off reporting actually Correct. what's happening Correct. they don't report the facts they report so, the drama so hysteria right mm. now is all time for the media i mean the news stations are having a field day they, with what's going and on and the ratings right now, are great for it for sure um you know, when things are boring, you know, they have to create drama. And that's why Trump's been as much of a, you know, interesting presidential candidate as he is, be, you know, president as he is because of that. The, so. But the media, if they were doing their jobs correctly, would A, report the facts, and B, when it's opinion-oriented, at least allow both sides to give their opinion. Yeah. And let people – because, look, I actually trust the American people are very smart. In the long run, they get it. Yeah. And even in this case, I'm not sure – I think one of the issues you're finding in today's – pandemic is a lot of people don't believe the hype that's why they go to the beach in mass numbers you're, yeah. yourself included yeah I, I was in a casino eight days ago yeah i'm, I'm not sure i buy buy into the hype so the problem with the media is if they start distrusting or not trusting what they say it has an interesting effect as well um yeah i mean just go back to the polls in the last election. Every single poll said Donald Trump was going to get killed in the election. Yeah. How'd he win? Yeah. Who are they polling? Yeah. How, how, how accurate is the media if they completely were wrong yeah, on yeah. a major election between two people? Yeah. How hard is it to poll? It does make you question. It makes me question anything they're putting out. And both sides. Well, I mean, it's funny because people like me going to the beach this weekend are like, you're so irresponsible or like you're part of the problem, whatever it is. It's like, okay, if, if everything that they're saying is true, maybe I am, but if they're not, you're an idiot <laughs> for, for staying at like, no, I'm using this as an example, right? But it's like, if you're, if you're letting the media dictate your life and you're going to listen to, and we don't need to get into climate change. We don't need to get any of that, but there are some correlations to that, right? It's like, you're, if, gonna, you're getting shamed into having to believe a system that you don't necessarily believe in. For sure. And I don't think we should allow this. I think we should always allow people to have an opinion, even if they're wrong. Yeah. That's and and you, shouldn't, you shouldn't get shamed into, like, yeah, you're, you're irresponsible for neglecting whatever the media is pressing upon you. So you know? I'll, I'll give you an example where we've allowed that to happen, and it's just not true. Um, gun control issues. Somehow the 300, and, 300 million guns that are out there in the world and the 80 million people, and I, I'm not sure that's the right number, but a lot, there are a lot of gun owners in the country are responsible for the idiot that shoots people at one place at one point in the year. They're not responsible for him. He's responsible for it. 
but you can shame every gun owner into believing that because you own a gun, somebody else is going to use it incorrectly. Yeah, and yeah. That's not fair. Yeah. In fact, if you've really thought about it, we have very little gun violence based on the number of guns we have because there's a lot of them out there. And in the grand scheme of things, the number of rifles, for example, that kill people is less than swimming pools. Yeah. So, so, it but, takes one idiot but for, you can yeah. shame an entire group of people for owning guns yeah. because they're wrong to own guns. Well, again, regionally, I mean, there's hunters and there's people that own guns in rural areas because there's no police department. There's a r- lot of reasons to own a gun. Yeah. Someone in the city may not agree with that. And, you know, if they shame everybody else into saying you shouldn't own a gun. Yeah. And it's worth noting that neither you or I are gun people. I don't own a gun. But it's more so the principle. It's, and it, I, whether or I, not you, you have the right to, for, sure. for self-defense. Yeah, I hear you. That was our first rabbit hole we've gone down. First tangent we've taken. <laughs> way, um, off, way off base. I'm going to bring it back, though, because I had, a, I had um, a couple different things that I wanted to learn from you on. Um, economic implications of this. You're an econ guy. And if there's anything that, like, boy, when I come to you and I know that there is no bias at all, it's that you know your shit because it's what you've done your whole life. You studied econ at UCLA. You know, you've been managing, you know, funds and and wealth for, gosh, how long now? 38 years. 38 years. Uh, You've seen a lot of market trends and stuff. Have you seen anything like this? What does this mean? How, how, like economically, how do we respond from this? Well, the hard part for me from an economic standpoint is we've allowed doctors to dominate the discussion on this pandemic, and rightfully so, because they've got a much better knowledge base than most other professions for understanding how viruses work and, and, and the, how fatal they might be and how contagious they might be. But when it comes to decision-making on how to run the country, the doctor's creed is, you know, save everybody. And so we, we get into a mentality where the doctor mentality is we, we need to do whatever it takes to save everybody <laughs> without yeah. looking at costs and benefits. And as an economist, we're the, the economists on the other side of the equation. We don't care how many people die. We just look at it from a cost-benefit analysis, which by itself is wrong as well. Mm-hmm. But as a pure economist, every move we make to try to derail this virus and save people that are vulnerable has a cost to doing so. Yeah. And at what point does the cost-benefit analysis make no sense? And I think we've gotten way past that in some of the decision-making that's been made. When you hear politicians say things like, "In this decision is made in the abundance of caution, or Andrew Cuomo in New York saying, if I just save one life over doing this, again, we could save a lot of lives by eliminating swimming pools. It's such a self-righteous comment. But it's, it's what politicians ridiculous. do. Yeah. I mean, Gavin Newsom did it this weekend. He got up and said, um, we need to shut down all of California as if Fresno and San Francisco are the same thing. They're not. Um, but he said within two months, within two months, 56% of uh, Californians will get this virus. That's 25.4 million people. In two months. Now he said that when 952 people were infected in the in the state, and if and here's what the deal: if he's getting that information from modeling and from doctors, at least I'd like to see the studies and the modeling. Yeah, yeah. And cite it like anyone else has. Cite it. Right. And he didn't. Yeah, he yeah. threw it out there and then he walked away. Oh, yeah. So, you know, your question is economically, how does this affect us? Well, if we allow the politicians and the doctors to to go so far as to say we need to do everything to stop this without any thought on the cost of doing so, 
you're going to have a huge economic impact that we, frankly, have never seen before. Yeah. You shut down economies. And, and the problem with that is when you're talking about lives and health, there's a cost to, to shutting down the economy. I mean, the best way to, um, the best way to get unhealthy is, is, is unemployment. If you don't have a job, it's hard to stay healthy. I mean, it's not yeah. a good thing. Suicide rates go up in higher. There's plenty of studies to show in, in higher unemployment scenarios, you have a higher suicide rate. Yeah, well, sure. Those are deaths, you know. I think about, I think about heart attacks. Stress this, levels. Stress, stress for, levels, the cortisol for, release, for, just, just from people that are going through, I just lost my job, my business is shut yeah, down, I can't risk. make rent. I mean, you think about things like domestic violence. violence you think about- You're on the right path. Uh, I mean, the trickle down effect versus the cases. Now, it's, it's really, it's not apples to apples. Right, like it's not a direct comparison, but I, I'm, I'm with you, in the sense that it sounds, it, it sounds like the hero move to well, we're gonna do whatever we can to save lives. That's it's like it, we're gonna shut everything down in order. It, it's almost like the, it's like the veneer of being the hero, when you're, you're really, you're not addressing the <laughs> what you're actually doing to. So in some ways, it's the easy way out because. Where is your risk in being the governor of a state of California, New York? And believe me, in New York in particular, they're having a real issue. But by doing the, I'm going to do whatever it takes at all costs, and I'm going to scream and shout for more hospital beds and all this, and, and we're going to shut down social distancing and quarantine people, and when it, does, when it turns out not to be as bad as you said it was, hmm. wow. you're going to say, it's only because I did it. You can't, your accountability is, yeah, yeah. is you, by, by erring on the side of abundant caution, Without looking at costs, yeah, you you've set yourself up the, for the easy route of always being right. The economist looks at it and says, "We have to balance those things. What's the cost of doing this? How long can the how long can society go without major businesses operating? And how many layoffs do we need to get to twenty percent unemployment before we say, hey, this is crazy?' Now, you have to go back then and say, "What is the disease and how how bad is it? And do we have treatments?" So where I applaud the 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 market is watching how many private companies are working desperately for treatments, vaccines, yeah, yeah. Uh, ramping up to try to, you know, be, be beneficial. Their whole hope is to get this thing past this very quickly. But in the meantime, the cost of being out of business is enormous. And, and, and it affects the young people. Yeah. They don't see how they're affected. No. You want a job? You're, you came out of college five years ago, and you, you're looking for employment opportunities in a recession. Yeah, it's not real good. It's not, and it's it, a cost. And what what's interesting, as we dive into this, and I, I'm seeing it for the first time, you're a rational econ thinker, so you're seeing it that way. It's the emotional person who sees it as but, exactly right, right? And so it's the, and and in times like these, that's a really hard line to toe because I, I'm just thinking of, you know, personally in, in running the business that I'm running, you know, running currently from just a business rational perspective, you, you could do what you do to keep your doors open because at the end of the day that gets people paid, that keeps the business running yet. You're going to have people that feel like it's immoral and unjust or whatever. So what, what does a great leader do in these times? I'm, I want to know because Again, like Newsom's going to take the 
the liberal emotional easy way out, right? Easy way. We're going to shut down California because everyone's going to feel good about that because I'm doing the right thing so that we can knock this thing out and I'm going to save everybody. But it's in my, in my opinion, it's actually the cowardly way. And, and this is what I love about Peterson and about a lot of the things that I'm learning is fucking tell the truth and, and just stand up so for what, what's right even when it's hard. The, the world has a great example of someone who did that. And much like Trump, who is a disliked figure at some level and has to deal with a tough situation, remember what Winston Churchill, Churchill. did. I knew you were going to go Churchill. Only because he, w- he fought again. He, he didn't go the easy route. The easy route was to mm-hmm. give in. Mm-hmm. The hard route was actually to fight, stand up, and say, we're better than this, and we don't want to be speaking German yeah. at the end of this conflict. Yeah. We don't want to give in to it. Yeah. And yet he knew it was going to cost a lot to, to have that position. But he fought for it. Yeah. That was not the easy way out. Chamberlain had the easy way out. For sure. Appeasement was much easier. Especially in, this, in the space they were in. So that easier was similar. Than the, yeah. Appeasement is similar to shut the country, shut the country down country. and we'll see what happens later. Yeah. Well, actually, what happens later could be very devastating. Because you can almost brush off the responsibility. The economy wasn't really on me. You know, or like, again, we don't hold accountable. Any doomsdayer from the last 50 years yeah. that predicted the end of the ice age, the end of, you know, climate change, whatever end alls you had, you can go back to people that said we were going to overpopulate the planet so we couldn't feed everybody. And 20 years later, there's the, the, the planet is wealthier than it's ever been with more abundance of food. So they were dead wrong. Who holds them accountable? It's yeah. easy to make doomsday predictions. Yeah. It's harder to fight the emotional doomsday and say, wait a minute, the rational decision is it's okay to let some people die. That's really hard to do. Yeah. I mean, Churchill allowed a city to be bombed because he had heard an intercept and decided he didn't want to give away the fact that they had yeah. decoded the Germans. Yeah. And he let tens of thousands of people die yeah. in a bombing because in the grander scheme, he was trying to win a war. I mean, that takes, that takes balls. That's hard. And it, That's the hard decisions. And it, it takes that sacrifice of it, it's hard. The wherewithal to make that judgment call takes so much. That's courage, man. And that's, that's leadership. That's leadership. And I, and I, he was I, not a well-liked person. No, not at all. Except we remember him, right? Well, and, because and, he did what it took. He didn't even get reelected. Yeah. After all that, he wasn't liked. Yeah. But he did what he had to do, and he st- he believed in what he was doing. I wrote down a couple names as far as leaders that have emerged from from really like pandemic like dark times that because I, I think now more than ever is like you need that person like you need that figure who is going to just tell it like, like it, it is, is and say you know what we are being foolish actually do you guys have any idea what we're actually doing right and churchill lincoln during mm-hmm. the civil war definitely right uh reagan during the cold war um stood up against a uh, regime he had to stand up against and, and and had to be fearless and really kind of step up to the right and, and we love we love that hero right I, I, I don't know about you I know you do there's something totally. about us that loves that guy who is just is well doesn't he, give a shit here's is, the hard part though at the time they're doing it they're really good because afterwards history shows them to be right I mean Lincoln and, yeah. and Churchill are good examples of that yeah they did what they had to do and they, they broke rules. They, they governed from a difficult standpoint. But what they were doing was 
the right thing in saving the Union or saving England from you know, being taken over by Germany. But at the time, those decisions were very controversial yeah. in, in a lot of ways, and a lot of people didn't believe they were – they had to really stand up and, and make their case. That's leadership. Yeah. Is really – and you know what? In thinking about it, what made them what made them great in the way that you just put it, they didn't actually care about their own reputation. No. They cared about the state. They weren't and that, cared and, about being reelected. No, that's not what they were looking at at the time. Or their own well being. It was actually the, I'm gonna I'm gonna do what's right first and sacrifice. Everybody here can hate me, and and but but they're remembered and and that's what you want to that's what you want in a leader because that's who you would vote for the person that will do the stand right up thing for what, no yeah. matter how hard that is to do it's really worth knowing and we've kind of lost that so and I, you know me i didn't vote for trump i'm not a trump supporter per se but as an example this this pandemic started in wuhan province in china and it was talked about, and it was it was they had quarantined their city, and there was a, you know, the media was downplaying it, but there was a real problem, and we had our first case of it in early in January 23rd, 24th, and on January 31st, Trump announced a travel ban against all flights from China coming into our country, mm-hmm. and his opponent for the election, Joe Biden, that day came out and said he's a xenophobe, he's a racist. The World Health Organization said that's overkill; you don't need to do that. Everyone denounced him for doing it. It's very Churchill-like. Yeah. So what countries didn't have a travel ban with China at that point in time and didn't do it? Italy, Spain, France. These are the countries who are getting – their people are dying. One of the, I believe one of the ministers uh, – I can't remember which department in Italy – actually came out and said, we were afraid of doing that because we were going to be called racist. When does political correctness actually kill people? We have an example. Yeah. We are living in an environment where being politically correct and worried about what people are going to say about you, this is a leadership issue. Yeah. Churchill would never have let that bother him. Being He got called every nasty name in the book. Yeah. Lincoln did too. You yeah, can go back and look at the headlines. Yeah, yeah. They were vilified for having a strong opinion on how we were going to get through this. And Trump's first comment, first answer to this was, well, it started in Wuhan. Why, why would we allow flights from Wuhan to... San Francisco or Seattle or New York. We will never know how many lives that might have saved, but thousands of Chinese people that might have been infected were tra- could have traveled into our country. Yeah. You know, again, you, you have to ask, was it fair to call him a racist because he did a travel ban against Chinese coming into our country? That's today's political correctness that yeah. will kill us. Yeah. That, that bothers me a lot because yeah. the media plays that up as, well, we can certainly... One of the things I hate is being called a racist for whatever reason. Whatever because, you do, because you're be- because you just because you're white and because you're well off and whatever, you can be whatever you say that, becomes sure. racist. That it loses yeah. its value. And what I'll get back to on the leadership stuff is one thing. Well, because I'll agree with you on on that, but I will say when I when I think about great leaders emerge in these moments, the hard part about Trump, and I'm not saying he's done anything wrong, and I don't I'm not even really tapped in because I to me it's all noise and I'm trying to actually tune out of it all. <coughs> I this is where he's not the leader that people are gonna buy into when we really need a message. And again, I don't know who that is. I, I don't know who I don't know who emerges from this mess. But if you look back in, in history, normally in these really dark times and these dark moments 
it's somebody has to come out and and carry the torch and lead the people and find a way to keep things positive and um at least i'm trying to navigate that in as as far as taking notes on on what it takes to be a great leader and i don't know if he's the guy and and that that that's fair it maybe doesn't have to be well but 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 mike my my answer to that would be it's because we're living in the moment, and I'm not sure Lincoln or Churchill in the moment, yeah. by the other side, were considered the guys. I mean, a lot of people thought Lincoln was just, you know, no, he was a nobody. Yeah, yeah. He got elected out of nowhere. Yeah. And Churchill was disliked by everybody years before World War II yeah. and didn't get reelected. But the his, history shows that they made great decisions that impacted the, the trajectory of their countries. And I'm not putting... Trump on that pedestal sure. today, but five, 10 years from now, we may look back and say, he made a hard decision that everybody criticized. No one likes him. Yeah, he's yeah. Inart- inarticulate. He's a bully. He's a narcissist. You can make all those comments, but an example today that the media is not going to talk about, he got out today and said, you know, this, we've, we've got to be careful that the cure isn't worse than the disease in, in how we're fighting this. And it would be great to see everybody in the pews on Easter. Easter's a big deal. Yeah. We need to be back in business by Easter. We need the congregations full. We need to see people in church on Easter. Now, to me, that's a little more Winston Churchill and yeah. Abraham Lincoln driven that yeah. he is seeing forward and saying, we've got a problem, but we can't we let this kill, kill us. us. Yeah. From, and Easter I'm is with you on that. Easter's not that far away. It's not. Well, what happened is the market responded in a, hey, this could... If yeah. you think if you're th- now the, the media will treat it as he's being positive on something he shouldn't be, and they might end up being right. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. But a leader says we have to have optimism too. Yeah. We have to look forward and say we need to get back to being who we are. And Easter's the big event for Christians around the world. Yeah. We should be in the pews, not sitting in our homes. For sure. No, that's interesting, and I agree. And I think that's a bold statement, but I think it needed to be said. You know, we'll I, see if we'll see if he's right. Yeah, and I was going to ask you, because I'm, I'm trying to, and not to make this about myself, but as I'm trying to navigate leading in times of uncertainty like this, I have my thoughts, I have my beliefs and my rationale thinking, and I very much near on the side of you of business and economy doesn't really have feelings, and, and you kind of sometimes have to do what you got to do. And yet, you know, I'm managing people that, emotionally are affected by this and don't feel like they should be in the market or whatever it is. So I I guess what I want to learn is do great leaders just completely hold true to their convictions and put their foot down and just say, this is the way it is because I need to make the right judgment call. Or is it because I I think there's some element of having to lower yourself to also know what everyone else is going through too, because granted I'm getting, you I'm just, I'm getting a paycheck. I'm going to look at the business this way because the business affects me this way. It doesn't affect the person who's been working for us for three months. Just like the economy, it affects everyone differently. So I think there's, there's different ways of approaching it. And I guess I'm trying to learn how to do it. I think, so it's a great question. And I think for me, the best thing, the, the thing that makes great leaders is something that most people can't do. And it's a two prong thing. First off, they have to see past the immediate issue. They need to see the future in, in, in terms of what they believe is the right thing for the country, the economy, 
uh, mankind, whatever it is, they got it's big picture. Yeah, yeah. Not about me, yeah. not about my next election, but in the long run, I need to look at it and say, as a leader, I see the future. And for Churchill, it was independent uh, England, not being overrun by the Germans. For, for Lincoln, it was keeping the Union together, not separating. I mean, if you think back to it, was that important? I don't know. Yeah. But he thought it was. Yeah. And yeah. He, he saw that it was important. Yeah. And he was right. Yeah. And Churchill was right. So another person that was right was Reagan. We were in a Cold War with Russia, the Soviet Union at the time. And his vision was we need to win this Cold War. We don't need to be enemies forever. And we need to be able to show that our system is better than theirs and will will dominate over time. But still being benevolent, we're not trying to overrun you. We just want to show you that the way you're looking at it is wrong. Wrong, yeah. Right? Or that our system needs to prevail in order to really Correct. restore. Yeah. And Reagan was looked at as, you know, a bumpkin. He was he was an actor, you know. He yeah, wasn't yeah. even though he was governor of California for two terms, he was still an outsider. The the media couldn't stand him. And he talked about Star Wars early in his first administration. Basically, he wanted a missile defense system that told the Soviet Union, if, you, if we're going to build something that if you shoot, shoot at us, we don't have to shoot back at you. We're just going to knock them out of the sky. Well, it was typed as Star Wars. He's out of his mind. He doesn't know what he's talking about. By the end of five or six years into his second term, when he five or six years through his terms, he had gotten the Soviet Union to realize that our system is much more efficient at allocating capital. We were building up our defense. They were trying to do the same, and they were bankrupting their country. Their people were starving. We were much more efficient at building up a military. We won a war without ever shooting a bullet. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty impressive. We, yeah. we, I'm, we're using Lincoln and Churchill, who had cost millions of lives to win wars. Reagan won a war without a bullet being fought yeah. or shot. I mean, that's pretty impressive. But what he did, so the first issue was he realized we have to beat the Soviet Union and that communism is wrong versus capitalism. The Berlin Wall was the final answer to that. I mean, East Germany was a puppet for the the Soviets, and that wall coming down today doesn't seem like a big deal at the time. You had a population that was absolutely, they were like in prison. Yeah. They were they couldn't leave. They were shot if they tried to escape their own country. Um, because of what Reagan did, that wall came down. It freed a ton of people. His vision was freedom and liberty are a winner and, and that includes capitalism, against the communist system. Yeah. And he was right. So, so A, his vision was, this is, gonna, this is the way we need to go. It was go. deeper than... Yeah. It wasn't whether I'm going to win the next when, election. For sure, it was, for sure. I'm looking big picture. Yeah. But the second point, and this is where Trump struggles, you have to be able to communicate that. Uh, yeah. And Reagan was a... Well, he's called the great communicator. Yeah. Churchill, great, great communicator. <laughs> and as Reagan... As gets, yeah. And, and Lincoln... Is, you know, the Gettysburg uh, yeah, Address yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's plenty of examples. He was yeah. kind of a he was a uh, kind of a stumbling guy, but in retrospect, his speeches were very yeah, powerful. Yeah. So you have to be able to you have to be able to communicate express the, and, and yeah. communicate that. For sure. No, that's a really good so point. A, you have to be able to do both. What I take away from that more than anything is um it's those guys weren't afraid of not being liked. Correct, and, and and I think that's really important as a leader to internalize. Is it doesn't it, it doesn't matter if you're liked or not. Do the right thing, 
do the right thing for the state, do the right thing for the business, do the right thing for the company, do the right thing for your family, but do the right thing. But not for you. Not for you, for the good of all, everyone the big else. picture, the even, future. Even if you're condemned for it by everyone else. Live by it. If Live by it. And one, it's funny, I, thankfully we don't have many liberal listeners, um, <laughs> but you know. Just converts. Oh, <laughs> I would say that like somebody like Obama who is liked by everybody, but probably wouldn't stand up for, and gosh, maybe I'm speculating. I don't know enough, but I guess what I'm saying is it's not always about being liked. It's about doing what's right. And I I think that's the main takeaway for me when I think about the great leaders in these type of moments that have to have to do what's done right? because it's hard. It's hard to do the right thing in really tough circumstances. So you bring up Obama and you didn't really, you were younger, so you didn't realize what he did or didn't do. And his big vision, because he had some big visions, he's a very smart and articulate guy, and his vision was a global, you know, society, yeah. and America was just part of it, and 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 he and he communicated that at times. I mean, a lot of times he'd say, um, "American exceptionalism," something we've kind of lived by. Well, you know, the British think they have British except, exceptionalism, and the French think they have French exceptionalism, but. That, and that's fine to say, but a leader of our country would say, no, we're, we're better than everyone else. And that sounds cocky, but that's kind of how, I mean, we played sports. You never really want to say, well, the other team's just as good as us. Mm-hmm. Your internal thought is, in order to be as good as you can be, you have to believe you're the best. And we're doing it the right way. And we're training the correct way. And we're, we're, we're working harder than the other team. That's how you win. And for for we were a little country back in the 1700s, and the idea was... We had to work harder to get to where we were at. And Barack Obama's uh, vision was, we're just a country in the global scheme yeah. of things. We're not, or at least I don't believe we are, because yeah. I think we're more innovative than ever. We lead the world in a lot of things, and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. But you have to also be somewhat cocky about it is, you, you, know, you need to look around and say, you guys do realize that we, you know, are defi- we're defending countries all over the world with our military. Yeah, we're giving money to other countries, to so they so they can feed their poor. We're most medical um, breakthroughs in the world are coming from U.S. scientists and, and medical people. You know, we we are we leading the world for sure. And and I look at that, and that's not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I can almost agree with you, and I actually think that this is almost going to have to be its own a separate podcast one in itself that we'll have to spin off of because my time in traveling the world and and the places I've been and people I've spoken to has changed my thought on this a lot. I'm with you from a success standpoint, but I also think we we need to sit back and define success too. And and the pitfalls of being that much more advanced and what that means for how we live our lives. And are we – from a materialistic standpoint, are we the most successful? Sure. But from a depth and a happiness uh, and I, a security and a, uh, uh, internal awareness, yeah. have we also lost a lot too? So I think there's a lot to explore. I, in I think that's fair. Yeah. But I'll, but we'll do it another time. But a question yeah. for you on that is as long as those people that are happy, go lucky and love each other and everything's wonderful are willing to defend themselves. I'm, I have no problem with it, but when they count on us to defend themselves, and then they're happy-go-lucky. Yeah, I just have to ask. You, there's a cost to. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I'd like to say everybody in the world can sing kumbaya and be, but there's a lot of bad people in the world. Yeah. I mean, there's 
there's a lot of countries that want to. Yeah, I think that that's a really, uh, there's so much, that's a deep philosophical thing that we could really go down. Absolutely. There's a lot there. So that'll be a fun one. We'll have to, uh, that'll be our next conversation. I'll pivot um, for one last thing. And and I love that we've been chatting about Churchill because he's one of my favorites. And he has a, he has a quote that I loved was a pessimist, um, you know, sees the difficulty in every situation and optimist sees the opportunity. Right. Um, from a business standpoint, we're in this really dark time. Pessimist sees this as this is the worst. Can you believe this? Coronavirus has hit. My sister's wedding is canceled. My job's in spec, you know, a million things that this is all going wrong. And, and an optimist sees everyone's freaking out. How do I, how do I get a leg up right now? How do I find a way to make the most of this time? So for me personally, I'll be quick. Like, I'm seeing this as, wow, I have a little bit more time at home. I don't have to travel for work. I get to come up and see my parents on a Tuesday night. I can, you know what, I want to read 20 books this year. I can get a really great head start on that. I can practice more meditation. I can get down to the beach. I can, there's all these things I can do during this time. I can start my podcast. I can, it's an amazing opportunity. Right. And I want to get your perspective from a market standpoint um, or even, you know, I, I talked to Mike Nigro today about real estate a little bit. I sent him a note and it's like where it, I, I think these are really critical times of your disposition and nature as a person can set you, set you apart. If you're an optimist, when everyone else is negative, you might really fare well from that. I, tell me if I'm wrong, but I, there's a, uh, and I can't remember exactly which of the uh, old robber barons from the early, early 19th century said this, but the quote was along the lines of, when we have bear markets, uh, ownership of stocks come back to the rightful owners. <laughs> uh, oh, and it's good. along the lines of the, the weak and the, the people who really shouldn't be in the market collapse and move out. It's a, it's a fear issue. It's an emotional issue. Yeah. And no one likes corrections in the market. No one likes collapses. And this is, by the way, the fastest market collapse in history in, in, in terms of two weeks of losses and then today was the biggest increase in the market in one day ever and yet it's only made up 25 percent of the losses for the month so it, the volatility is unprecedented yeah yeah and we look at that and say well how are we going to come out on the other side down the, in the long run in other words the viruses like any other um like most black swans a virus goes away at some point so our economy will be different six months 12 months 18 months from now who are the winners and losers? Well, the way to do that is to sit back uh, without emotion and say, what industries, how does the world change? Who benefits from that? And in a society that's going to be more cautious about how many people we sit around and how, how much interaction we have, I don't know, will you order more stuff from Amazon online? Yeah. Seems to me you will. Yeah. There's winners and losers to yeah. this. And you have to identify. Um, we talked about it earlier pent-up demand the poor restaurateurs who are shut down for a month or two there's no pent-up demand for hamburgers six months from now you're just gonna sell one hamburger to a guy six months from now you lost all the sales in between yeah but for the people that have put off getting the knee surgery in replacement because of this they'll get the, the companies that are doing knee replacements will six months from now do twice as many because they can do them yeah and there's pent-up demand yeah it was just delayed yeah. Home Depot is going to do okay because you can put off replacing that door because you can't go out today, but you can't not replace that door 
forever. Yeah. So the pent up demand will go to companies that, um, you know, provide services that have just been delayed. It's those commodities that are more instantaneous and like transient in that way, right? That you kind of uh, well, we have to be careful of you know companies that do cyclical businesses that once the if you're in the wrong part of that cycle you never get that business back. Yeah, yeah. So it, you know, today uh, if you don't if you don't serve someone a dinner today, they're not going to buy two dinners from you six months from now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. where I'm going with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas gotcha. the yeah. the knee replacement that has been put on hold because the operating rooms are busy, there'll be twice as many knee surgeries 6 months from now. So if you're a medical device so company, net is if you're a medical yeah, device yeah. company that's pacemakers For or sure. knee replacements, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, your your business will probably be really good. You're just getting the delayed. The restaurant business loses. So I'll, I'll give you an easy one. Cruise ships, the cruise lines. Who's going to go on a cruise ship anytime <laughs> in the near future? How bad yeah, is that? Industry They're is a petri dish of... It, it's terrible. So you have certain industries that yeah. really get well, hurt by I this. I got to think, too, if, if Airbnb wasn't already starting to, I mean, really kill hotels after this... When you get a private Airbnb versus you have to go stay in a hotel with 5,000 other people or whatever it is at a casino, or you'd rather get your own place, right? You, you, you people, could, that fear is going to creep into people, I think, a little bit enough that so it'll be residual. It took, that's a perfect example, Travis. And how about this one? If you're going to go that round in New York, are you going to take the subway or are you going to get on an uh, Uber? Oh, yeah. How, how many subway cars do you – how many people do you want yeah. to be crammed in with holding on to the same pole with – People, we're going to have a little bit of a fear of, you know, we're going to all become germaphobic to some degree yeah. in the short run over what's happened. And it's the biggest. Just, just like when after 9 11, people, security got really tight, right? And then now there's TSA pre check, people walk through. Well, so so it, it'll loosen. So here's the question I would ask I would ask our public officials if 9 11 created TSA, where because of five guys who took you know had to learn to fly and to go into buildings and to this day 20 years later we're still patting down 84 year old grandmothers to see if they've got <laughs> explosives what are we going to do about um foreigners coming into our country that have a fever is there going to be a quarantine check because i'm going to tell you right now i'm not comfortable with people flying into our country with a fever yeah i don't know if i want to go down well, uh, but but the point is, we made a lot of adjustments after 9-11 yeah. for something that's never happened again. Yeah. How many bombs and guns have been discovered since then? Yeah. Yeah. So That's a good point. We, we, things change after a major crisis like this, yeah. and it'll be interesting to see how we adjust. We talk, about re- we talk about businesses that are really getting hit hard. Restaurants, you know, I think of family-owned restaurants. For me, at two of really influential people in my life Absolutely. that have taught me a lot about good values between Stenny's, which was a, you know, dive, dive bar in Milwaukee that, you know, really took me in as like family and my time out there. And then Anderson's was a restaurant in Santa Barbara that I worked at for three years that taught me a lot. It was my first job. Mrs. A. And Mrs. A. And, um, you know, to this day, one of the most influential people in my life, just because, and she'll probably never like, I, and I tell her that, but she probably doesn't even realize like, I learned so much just by observing her. Learned a lot of economics from how she runs a business. She showed up at 7 a.m., closed the place down at 9 p.m. She was in her 60s, 70s. And, man, that's a hardworking woman. And just that's where, you know, where my heart really drops in this whole thing is, like, 
How is that fair? And the government told her she can't do her run job. Her she can't run her restaurant. So that's really tough. I mean, I, I think the restaurant industry gets hit really hard. Um, gosh, I, I didn't even think about this until our conversation, but subscription businesses that because that's a really interesting business model. Once you get people to subscribe, I mean, that's steady cash flow, right? Mm-hmm. But on, I'm thinking of like the gym subscriptions and all that kind of stuff where it's where you, you get the 40 bucks a month, you know, times your thousand consumers or whatever, and that's your big income and everyone's canceling their memberships. That's a really, I, I don't know. I feel like that's something where I, I've noticed like, uh, you know, gyms and yoga studios giving crazy discounts just to keep cash flow mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. If when things get restored back to normal, we'll give you this big of a discount if you pay us now. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, so, so one, so some of the the industries that I feel like are benefiting the home workouts. We joked about Peloton. People, everyone wants to buy home, you know, weight equipment now. They're right. benefiting. Um, I find it really interesting these like Google Chats and Google Hangouts. People just sitting in their houses doing FaceTime and stuff. To me, I'm not a fan of it. I don't like it. I feel awkward FaceTiming. I feel awkward being in my own room. But those are it's shifting towards but that. that's more like feel good instead of productive yeah i think that's to make feel people feel good about yeah uh, that's fair it, yeah it, and, and that's more of an emotional response that'll go away okay but how about this though online school oh yeah that's a big deal and that's gonna change things i, I just at what point does do you <sighs> well you just sometimes crises uh, this is another thing that i've read Sometimes crises uh, accelerate a trend that's already in place. Yes. Homeschooling for sure. has become a big deal to begin with. I've got clients who homeschool their children. And so if you're disappointed in the government school system, which is what we have today, and you don't think your kids are getting a proper education or a proper uh, slant to what you know how they're being taught, that's already happening. Well, this just magnifies that. If you can do online and you can teach kids without even going to class, you're, t- you're probably thinking higher education. I'm thinking elementary school. It doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. You could see a change, a paradigm shift in how we do education, which I don't yeah. think is a bad thing. Really, though, with the socialization implications? I think that's important still, but I think at times we've overdone that yeah. to where it, we need to make sure kids are learning something. For sure. And No, I, th- I think there's wild benefits to homeschooling if done properly, I mean, totally. There's a lot of bad homeschooling. Because I, I, I think there's a lot of drop your kids off. You don't have to see them for nine hours. And it doesn't really matter what they're getting taught. They're just, just screwing they're around gone. with other exactly. kids. And I think there's a lot of value that could be added. So I agree. I think these things can shed light. Um, and But that's going to be a very interesting – schooling is going to be a very interesting change coming out of this. And to your point – um, college, you're thinking college and online classes. Yeah. You don't want to miss the experience. It's yeah. a, an important point in your changing from a, a child to an adult. Yeah. And if you're not learning and living the experience, you probably aren't growing very well. Yeah. And you're going to miss that if it's all online. Yeah. That, it's, it's interesting to think because you, you make a great point with these things accelerate the trends that are kind of already in place, but there isn't that tipping point to really propel it to where it needs to go you kind of toe the line of well this is how it's always been so we keep it this way and we've talked this way about the 
you know, rental spaces, right? Well, everyone comes in from eight to five because that's how we've done it at this company uh, for exactly, 60 years. Exactly. It's like, wait, do we really need half of the people that do their work via the internet to be here eight hours a day? Like, probably not. So back to schooling, why is it we still go to school from September to June and take all summer? <laughs> that's a great point. We've been doing we that. that for, we yeah, did that yeah. for farming reasons in yeah. the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't apply today. Yeah. And for the single mom who has a job, the last thing she needs is her kids home all summer. So we, we may shift some of our thought process on how we do education. And I think that's where the optimist sees this and where the silver lining is remembering that sometimes these things need to happen. I for agree. Us to figure things out. And, you know, for me, I have faith that God has a plan and coronavirus is just part of his plan and resetting things back to to normalcy and and sometimes it's a a smack on the head of you guys all think you have it figured out um, you're you've got a lot wrong with what you're doing some, and here's how i'm gonna there's nothing like a virus to let the, the human population know they're not in charge completely right i mean we we are learning globally the pandemic right that that this virus is uncontrollable by man yeah you know, how do the dinosaurs feel with a asteroid? It's the same thing. Yeah. You can have a wipeout and you go, you're not in control. Uh, it, nothing. It just makes you awaken to your mortality quicker Correct. than. So before we go down a rabbit hole, just imagine how skeptical I am of climate change in that we can control something that is way beyond our control. Yeah. Not that we shouldn't have a greener planet and a, and a better environment. I'm all for that. For sure. But the idea that man is in control of the climate and can change it, hard, to, it, be, hard to believe. It's sort of an arrogant. Very when arrogant. You, when you think about it. Very arrogant. And That's the right word. Yeah. And I think just from a just an operating standpoint, where I can feel optimistic in these times is just knowing that I'm not in control. The only thing you're in control of is your attitude and your reaction and the way that you treat others. And I think the best thing that we can do in these times, what endures is your character. And so how do you respond? If it's hysteria and all the toilet papers for me and it's a scarcity, right? It's a scarcity We're mindset of screw your neighbor. I need to take mine. Or I need to do the right thing by my job or I, I don't th – th there's certain different ways that we can operate and approach this situation. And I think um, who we are as people is what's telling and what endures and actually helps us come out the dark side of these tunnels and establish a foundation for growth. Otherwise – it can exponentially get worse. Like we could really turn this thing into hell if we want to, with how the economy is. And we can turn on each other, and we can have that, like the hoarder mentality. Yeah, we don't like seeing the hoarder mentality, but yet by the same token, we have to be really proud of our uh, first responders and doctors and nurses that are dealing. They're in hazmat suits dealing with these illnesses. They're like our soldiers. Yeah, right? they're, they're fighting. Front lines, they're the front line sure. of fighting. While other people are going, well, I don't really want to work today. I mean, you you, you kind of lose a little bit of. Um, empathy for those who say, oh, "Gee, I have to go to work and, you know, s serve the public," when they're not in a hazmat suit serving someone who has a potentially deadly virus. Yeah, it's a big difference. Yeah, and those people, you know, you're right. You're you're totally right. And um, 
I'm grateful for those people. And it just, it looks different than it does. It's funny. It looks different than it does in the, like, you know, not to classify the pandemic as a war, but when we think about it's, it's, it's We're relevant. kind of talking it's, about it kind of talking about way. Just the difference is in war is the fear of I'm getting bombed or I'm getting sent to war. Or I'm actually going to go to battle and be killed. Now it's like, no, you have to stay inside your house and watch Netflix. It's weird. <laughs> it's like, uh, if that's you a sacrifice, for sure. We're kind of, kind of weak as a society. But I think in, in sort of wrapping this thing up, I, it's a really interesting time where I think it's really worth thinking about how, how we operate and I'm really happy to talk to you about it because I, I think it'll be interesting to look back on who benefits from this time, who fail. How do, do we, how do we fail? come out of how this? How do we come out of how, this? How, how what we, changes? How, how yeah. do we come out of this? So the question to you is how bad is this going to be? And are we going to actually, is it going to be, is it going to be doomsday or is it going to be, well, we lived through another crisis like swine flu that we really five, 10 years from now don't think much of it. We're living in it. It's, we're in the middle of it. We're smack dab in the middle of right it. Right in the middle. I'd like to think, and I'll try to just speak into it, is I'd like to think that we've probably overreacted and been overcautious. Because of our overcaution, we've been able to mitigate what could have gotten really even bad. Even worse. Even worse. We did nip some of it in the bud. We didn't reach that tipping point. The hospitals are going to be able to handle it all. Because of that, by Easter, we're going to restore some normal steam. And we do understand and the gonna, economic issues as well. And and because of that, there's going to be more grace and there's going to be more understanding. And as a whole, as a society, we're going to become more empathetic. We're going to have more compassion for our neighbor. We're going to realize we all went through something. We're going to reschedule our lives and probably internalize a lot of this and realize what's really important and a lot of good can come from and it. And maybe grow from this, which would be great. That's my hope. I don't disagree. I'll, I'll second that. Cool. So we'll see. We'll close with that. Uh, this was fun. This was easy. Yeah. Talk all night. We could. We totally could. <laughs> I, I, I made a couple notes. And uh, gosh, we could probably rabbit hole for three or four different types of podcasts. But um, again, this is, this is an experiment. And I love these conversations with you and just the fact that we can, we can actually like set intentional time. Um, my goal is to keep doing this with you and, um, I had a blast. It was great. Me too. It was fun. It was fun. Love you, man. Love you, bud.